scam likely, my smartphone warns me on occasion. I suppose that's shorthand for answer this incoming call and you're likely to hear from an untrustworthy person asking you to trust them. Wise living in this world requires the skill of knowing whom to trust. Virtually everywhere we go, think of it, everywhere we go, everything that we do, we are constantly figuring this out. Who can I trust? You hand your credit card to a server at a restaurant and she runs off to who knows where. Right past the young kid that you just trusted to make your food for you. But the stakes get a lot higher, don't they? You determine to trust an auto mechanic with your car, a dentist with your teeth, a travel agent with your trip, a bank with your paycheck, and a pilot with your life. You just sit in that seat and you trust that person. And yet the stakes get higher. As in the deep trust, think of it and just concentrate on it again, the deep trust when a couple stands before a minister and says, and the congregation and says, I vow to be faithful to you. I vow to have no other. I vow to give my life to you and entrust myself to you for life. That's a lot of trust. But on various levels, we all struggle to trust someone virtually anyone, when we cannot understand what they are doing or how, under the circumstances, they're going to make things work out. And God knows this about our Constitution, yet, and I say it reverently, He doesn't seem to care. It just doesn't seem to faze Him. Trusting and obeying God is a whole lot easier When you understand exactly what's going on and you know precisely how God will bring you through these challenges of life. But wait a minute. When on earth does that ever happen? We always struggle to understand what God is doing, where He is leading or how his promises could possibly hold true under these circumstances. But none of this seems to trouble God. He doesn't rework his plan. He doesn't operate differently. He continues to carry on. And he loves us. He boldly commands us to trust him completely. To know that He will reward in the future those who seek Him in the present, come what may. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Let the truth wash over your soul, believer. He is there. He is sovereign. He will reward our trust in Him. He will fulfill His promises. We can trust Him. Scam impossible. This is the life orientation that God commends even when His commands and His promises seem to slam headlong against common sense and prevailing circumstances. 
And if you find yourself in that spot, you know that you travel with some very good company along faith's winding path. So we pick up in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17 as this account of faith in ages past continues to be unraveled here by the author of Hebrews. In verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11 and down through verse 22, we see the faith of Israel's patriarchs and the promised land, the connection to the land of promise and to the offspring that is promised to Abraham. We read of it earlier here today in Genesis, but verse 17, the synopsis of it is, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You see the convergence, the promise of God, the command of God, not seeming to work together and slamming up against the circumstances of Abraham's life. We remember, of course, that God promised Abraham he would father many descendants in union with Sarah, his infertile wife. God miraculously empowered Sarah to conceive and bear Isaac. So this was the son, through this son's body, that the promise was to flow. Abraham wholly trusted God's promise. But now God explicitly commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac's life. God is not gleeful here. He's he's not playing games. This is how big he is. None of this makes any sense to Abraham. Now such a practice, we should remember, was not unprecedented among the pagans of that day and so would not have been as appalling to Abraham as it would be to us on this side of the cross and in our day. But in any event, it was a legitimate ask. Do you believe that? God is the author of life, and God is free to call home anyone as he chooses. This was an excruciatingly difficult command for Abraham to stomach. I think that truth is there, and we should acknowledge it. But the emphasis here is not so much on that as it is on God's command slamming headlong into his promise. How do you trust this God? What do you do? What is God going to do? How can I trust him and obey his word? Abraham's reasoning we find in verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We don't know where Abraham arrived at that conclusion, if it was on the way to Moriah, if it was going up the mountain. But somehow, in some way, he came to the understanding that God is trustworthy, even in this situation. And so, if it's this son through whom the promise will come, then this son will be alive on the other side of death. I don't know how to figure that out. I don't know how that will look. I know no other way through it. And there in verse 19 at the end, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
the conviction was that he could obey God and God would obey his promise. And in a manner of speaking, I think we could even say, typologically speaking, Isaac was raised from the dead. There's so much pointing us ahead to the son who was offered, and there was no intervention, our Lord Jesus. But notice verse 17 again, that it says there, when Abraham was tested. That is, Abraham was faced with a situation in which God's promise was in conflict with his command. Would Abraham trust God to honor his word and obey his command? That's what's at issue here. Or would he decide to help God keep his promise by disobeying his command? Is this not a common experience of our lives? This is really where we live much of our lives. Just to simplify it and put it into into a graspable place here by way of application just briefly, we have this command of Scripture in Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good. Yet obeying God seems to be the last possible way for things to work out for good. Many, many times. In 1657, John Bunyan of Bedfordshire, England, was arrested for preaching the gospel. In that particular point in time, you had to have the approval of the state, and the state determined what you would preach and what you were going to say, and they, they directed and dictated terms that way, and Bunyan was of a more biblical, evangelical, baptistic convictions, was not allowed to preach, in, in that, under that, uh, under English law. And so as he preached the word of God, as he believed was faithful and right, he was imprisoned for 12 years in terrible conditions. As he went to prison, he was an impoverished tinker. He did not have much money. And it's difficult for us to even perceive such poverty But his wife's dowry was two books. They read those books over and over and over again. There was no TV, no internet. You read what you had. They had two books. They did not own a spoon or a plate. He's going to prison for preaching the gospel. You don't have to preach. You could just hold your tongue. How will he take care of his family? He said this, The parting with my wife and children hath often been to me in this place as pulling the flesh from my bones. the horror of what he was doing. He agonized over the reality that he was leaving behind a wife with four children. One so very precious to him, Mary, was blind. He legitimately feared, and I mean legitimately feared, that his family would hunger to death. That they would not have sufficient means to warm their home. 
So it was like pulling the flesh from his bones. The pain of it. How could God work anything out for good in this situation? How could he do this? Well, the authorities came in and helped him out and said, John, listen, if you just stop preaching, you can go back home and care for your family and we'll let you loose. His answer to them was, if you release me today, I'll preach tomorrow. Just think of the agony, the difficulty of obedience to God coupled with the circumstances when he wrote of this time, I was as a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Now I thought on those two milk cows that were to carry the ark of God into another country to leave their calves behind them. He said, that's how I feel compelled by the glory of God to carry on and to trust him to care for my family. To work this out together for good. Like Abraham before him, Bunyan knew that God ordains all that comes to pass. That God is infinitely wise and therefore cannot err. God is infinitely kind and good. And thus, he wept with John in his suffering. And he knew that God's thoughts run too deep for us to grasp all of his purposes in this dying world. What is the point of it all? God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy in all circumstances, at all times, without fail. So disobedience is never the answer. Verse 20, we pick up with Isaac as the string continues. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. As the book of Genesis recounts the story, Isaac's faith is not on clear display. We see his pettiness. We see his weakness. He favors Esau over Jacob for selfish reasons. But Jacob trembles with fear when he discovers that he has blessed Jacob and not Esau as he had intended. What is he realizing there? He's realizing that providentially God had moved to bless Jacob and Isaac wasn't on God's page. And so in the end, he does demonstrate faith as he blesses both of his sons, demonstrating that he believed God's promise to Abraham. Jacob, verse 21, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Joseph could have had the equivalent of a state funeral in Egypt. He might have been buried in a pyramid. But he demanded that his mummified body be taken with Israel back to the promised land. Now, I, I don't know, I can't prove this, but I, I would assume that he understood the prophecies of Genesis 15. That he understood that it was going to be hundreds of years before Israel possessed the land and yet he left instructions that his remains be buried in that promised land not in Egypt where he had gained all of his fame 
Can you see that mummy being carried by the Israelites through the sea and on its way to the promised land? Finally, at long last. Sometimes God works in centuries. We like it when he works overnight. Joseph trusted God to act well past Joseph's short appearance on earth's stage. He lived that way. The patriarchs in the promised land. We see the faith of Moses in the exodus from Egypt as as the next case study in faith. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The faith of Moses' parents is actually the subject here, of course, but involving him. Uh, What are we to make of this? Because they saw that the child was beautiful. It's very common for commentators to say that something in the appearance of the child led them to understand that this was a very, very special boy. That That God's hand of blessing was somehow uniquely upon him. Well, it's, it, you know, it, it's not, as you think on it, meditate on it, but it's not like the other parents, Jewish parents in Egypt are like, yeah, that kid's not so pretty, let's just give him away. Yeah, no special child here, kind of looks like us, I guess we can turn him over to the Egyptians. It, who's saying that? That's not the point. And I kind of question that common interpretation, I just throw it out there, just Dan's opinion, but... I suspect every Jewish parent thought exactly the same thing about their infants. This is one beautiful child. And I think that might be more what's going on here, is that they're just saying, we're not throwing this kid away. This is our child. He's beautiful. He's a gift from God. And they stood out and defied Pharaoh and hid their son. Verse 24 By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. To live out your days, imagine it, to live out your days as Pharaoh's son. That would provide what? Wealth? Fame? Privilege? Status? Opportunity? The traditions that we have about Moses in these first 40 years confirm all of that. The highest education, the best military training, if we are to believe those traditions, and they make perfect sense for Pharaoh's son, Pharaoh's daughter's son, adopted son. But Moses made the choice to turn his back on all of that. In the place of ease and wealth and fame, he chose to be mistreated along with God's people. He carefully weighed two options. The temporary pleasures of sin available in a God-defying palace or joining an enslaved people. Verse 25 assumes a life of sin among godless people can indeed provide pleasure. But notice what it says, any such pleasure is fleeting. 
He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I've spoken these words of counsel not often, and I'm glad I haven't spoken them often, but I've said to some young people who have left our assembly, who've grown up in this church, and I've said even to some adults from time to time, when the life of sin that you are choosing runs you into the ground, come back. You'll find an open door. But that day is going to come. This is not going to end well. The fleeting pleasures of sin, we need to underline that word fleeting. We also need to acknowledge the word pleasures. Sin provides a certain level of pleasure. The Bible does not deny that. It just says that its time span is very brief. The point in time is always reached on the highway of sensual pleasure where the pleasure's gone and the consequences have come to take root. How did Moses find the motivation to turn from such pleasures? He experienced what is called commonly now the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. We see it there in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ is a greater wealth. Moses had nothing like a full-orbed view of the suffering Messiah, but he was pointed in that direction. However much he knew about it, the author of Hebrews, we as believers in Christ, know that's where he was tracking. By implicitly trusting God in Egypt, he oriented his life toward the ultimate triumphant one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose this path, notice again here in verse 26, by setting his sights on the greater wealth, the reward. So he's, he's not calculating here and saying, God needs me. I, I've got the stuff, I've got the resources, I've got the name, I've got the leadership. Uh, I'll take one for the team and do God a favor. There is nothing like that anywhere in Scripture. I think of Luke chapter 18 and verse 29 where Jesus addressed this almost more in a word of rebuke as much as a word of blessing where he said anything you give away you will receive for God's purposes and glory. Anything that you give away you'll receive more in this life. In this life and in the life to come, eternity with God. Moses realized that identifying with God's people was an act of faith that would yield rich reward. It was the expulsive power of a new affection. There was a greater wealth here. It was a calculated decision of what was really valuable in this world. And so he turned down fabulous wealth on earth in order to be wealthier yet. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
you might remember Exodus 2.14, which says that's exactly why he left Egypt, was because he was afraid. So is that a contradiction here? No, the, the author knows the Old Testament text very, very well. But he's, he's not looking here at the emotional fear. He's looking here at the overall life, the bold action to trust God from that day forward. To flee alone to Midian was nearly as dangerous as being a, as, as a refugee as it would be to hide in Egypt. But Moses endured every challenge by fixing his eye of faith on the unseen God. It seems that the fact is this. Moses never said, whoa, what have I done? I really had it good in Egypt. Now I'm a nobody here in the wilderness of Midian. Maybe I made, the, maybe I made a bad mistake. Maybe this whole thing was foolish and I shouldn't have gone here. No, he went with confident endurance, knowing that he was following the Lord. He endured because he trusted in the God who is, and he banked on God meeting him on the road ahead with that reward, verse 6. Imagine how Moses felt when the Israelites said, we want to go back to Egypt, it was better there. He's like, you have no idea. But the reward of Christ is better. Some 40 years later, verse 28 By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That is, trusting God's command. A strange command, frankly. What are we going to do with this? Kill a lamb, take its blood, and smear it on the posts in the doorway. God promised that by that means the death angel would pass over the Israelite homes. They had to trust God's provision of salvation, and they did, which led to their exodus from Egypt, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Wise living demands the skill of discerning whom we will trust. Now, admittedly, Israel's between a rock and a hard place. It's not like they've got a whole lot of options here. If they don't go across the Red Sea, they've got to face Pharaoh's army. So it's a, it makes sense in that sense. But can you imagine how petrified you would be to start to walk down into the sea and to look to the left and look to the right and say, these walls give in, we're gone. But they did. They walked miles across the sea bottom with the walls of water on either side, and it was faith that was required. They had to choose in that spot to trust God. Israel had to trust God to protect her, to trust God to deliver her and to set aside all other plans like, for instance, maybe we could go begging to the Egyptian soldiers and plead to be slaves again. But with Moses at the head, they listened to the command of God. did not matter that they had no training in walking between parted waters. They had no precedent that they could call upon and say, how's this work? Can we trust God? 
God said full steam ahead and they journeyed on. And the next day they sang and danced on the other side of the waters free at last as God destroyed the Egyptians who tried to do the very same thing. Then the wilderness wanderings. Then Israel finally coming to the promised land. We see the faith of the conquest and the Gentile convert in these last two verses here. Verse 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. That is with those at Jericho who died, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. There's a lot there that we need to fill in, but why did Israel circle Jericho for seven days? It wasn't to impress the people of Jericho, that they were great military might. The only reason that they did that was to obey God, to trust Him. For their good, for their glory, this was the way through. Without faith that God would reward their obedience, those tactics would be ridiculous. If the people of Jericho had not been so terrified of them, they probably, you can just hear the taunts that would have come. Hey, people, you're supposed to attack us. We, we kind of know this is coming. This is, I don't know what you're doing. We know you're not a good army. You don't have a lot of experience here. But this is not what you do. Walk around the city. You attack the walls. They did what God said. And God attacked the walls. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute was counted then with the people of faith. The harlot Rahab was not impressed with Israel's military power either. She was impressed that God fought for His people. And her trust in God serves as a foreshadowing of the nations that would come, of the Gentiles that would come to trust in Israel's God. That they would come by means of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God ultimately. We see that just rising from the text, don't we? We see Israel plastering their doorways with the blood of the Lamb as it points to the redemption through the shedding of blood which the author of Hebrews has discussed. We see Jesus as the festival of Passover, the Lamb of God who is sacrificed. Indeed, Jesus dying at Passover A bloody death on a Roman cross as the final sacrifice for sin, dying in the stead of sinners. We see how vital it is that blood is shed, that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And figuratively speaking, I trust for you, for each of us, that we have, figuratively speaking, smeared on the doorframe of our hearts the blood of Christ. That it is that blood which speaks for us. That the forgiveness of sin comes through this sacrifice of this Lamb on God's terms. And then we see Rahab, a Gentile, a prostitute, a pagan rebel against God who has a change of heart about the Lord who is clear-minded enough to say, I want to be on his side. I imagine she wasn't particularly received 
in that culture, and yet she had family, she had people who loved her, and she turned on all of that, save those who joined her, and she became part of the people of Israel through faith in Israel's God. That's why we're here today. For those of us who have come to faith in Christ, the knowledge of what Christ accomplished on the cross is sufficient reason to trust Him. Whatever circumstances that you're going through, any place in your life where the promise of God and the command of God seem to be in conflict, look to the cross. But let us remember in light of this passage that we must also learn to trust Him then at all times. We trust Him for our salvation. Do we trust Him in those moments? Do we remain faithful? We trust Him when His promises and His commands seem to conflict. To remain faithful and labor for reconciliation in your marriage when it seems nothing can possibly work together for good. To refuse to despair or worry in obedience to Christ when the loss of your husband continues to create a host of reasons to do so. To rejoice and pour your life out in service to others as God commands when you see no evidence your singleness is working out for good. To obey mom and dad because God calls you to do so even when it seems to make no sense. To rest in God's provision and grace when disease and weakness are crushing you and there is zero evidence anything is working together for good. At least in those dark moments when the pain is so real and the future so dark. And we fail to look long enough. To be anxious for nothing in obedience to Christ when the circumstances of life say, be anxious. Why? Why all of this? Why this chapter? Why this book of faith in the life of God's people? Why? The reason is God is trustworthy. How weak our faith. How often we question. But He is trustworthy. He will do what He has purposed to do for the ultimate good of His people, for the ultimate good of His church, for the glory of His name, and what He does in this world, in this life, will resound through all eternity to the praise of His glorious name. In that day when the faith becomes sight and none of us ever again questions Him. We're not there yet. But, by the grace of God, may we learn to trust Him. May we learn to walk in faith, for He is trustworthy. You can trust God to be God. 
and to never, ever scam you. Lord, we praise you for these promises we heed in your word. We know as we've come to saving faith in Christ are true. They are yes and amen in Jesus. And yet, I bow before you representing this church in my own soul. And we acknowledge, Father, how often we question you. How often we wonder. How could you possibly work this together for good? Surely, we must cheat. Surely, we cannot be truly obedient. Lord, we do it again and again. We acknowledge it, and there are undoubtedly those among us here who haven't even begun the path of faith or trusting in themselves, who in Rahab's spot are looking at who you are and what you've done and saying, I think I'll stay with Jericho. God, pull them out, even today. We pray in their behalf that they'd come to faith in the sacrificed lamb, that they would have their own exodus from this godless world and trust Christ crucified and risen. May we all join with the joy of Rahab of having left our world's allegiance, our allegiance to this world, and place that allegiance with our risen Savior. Deepen our faith. Take these words, these weak words of human incompleteness, and may you, by your Spirit, deepen us in the faith through the revealed word we pray in Christ's name. Amen.